Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's episode is sponsored by Kara Hendricks, financial advisor with Edward Jones. I personally wish I had started saving for retirement earlier in my career. If saving for retirement is something you always seem to be thinking about but not actually doing, you need to talk to Kara. She works with investors of all ages and every level of financial means, and she treats clients the way she would like to be treated. So to get started, call Kara Hendricks at 806-358-8346 today. Edward Jones, Making Sense of Investing, member SIPC. Hey, Amarillo is also sponsored this week by Wick Realty. Katie Wick and her agents helped me buy and sell a house late last year, and I believe they're the best in the business here in Amarillo. They're invested in seeing Amarillo flourish economically and socially for all groups of people. So if you're buying a home, if you're selling a home, if you're building a home, if you're looking for investment property, if you're a first-time homeowner, talk to Wick. You can go to wickrealty.com. That's W-I-E-C-K. Today's guest is Julie Ballard. Now, Julie is one of those people you might meet around town who looks and talks just like everyone else. She works as a marketing consultant for Faith City Mission, but she has an unbelievable story to tell about her past, including the last couple of years of her life here in Amarillo. So I don't want to spill too many details up front, other than to say, Faith City offers an eight-month program for single women called the Res Program, and Julie just graduated from that program in March of this year. And also, just a word of warning for listeners, in this conversation, Julie and I talk about suicide, drug use, and other very difficult subjects. If those are topics that you need to avoid, I don't want to surprise you. So here's Julie Ballard. Julie Ballard, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I'm very privileged for this. Opportunity. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad to have you here, and I'm, I'm anxious to hear about you know what brought you to Amarillo and in your relation to the city. But you know, before we talk about the details of who you are and what you do, I, I like to just establish people in this area. So, like. What's your relationship to Amarillo? How did you end up here in the first place? It's quite an adventurous story. Um, I'll start kind of at the beginning, if you don't mind. I um, was born in Ruston, Louisiana. Which is not anywhere close to Amarillo. No, not even close. I was raised there my whole life and went to college there at Louisiana Tech. But when I was young, uh, my dad went to prison for embezzlement. And it was really a tough time for us. We kind of lost everything that we knew. Uh, We were no longer keeping up with the Joneses. The Joneses had long dismissed themselves from our lives once that happened. And when he got home, things were a little odd and different. Um, In my uh, sophomore year of high school, he committed suicide. Wow. How old were you when the embezzlement and stuff was taking place? I was in the fifth grade when he went to prison. I was in the seventh grade when he came home. So you grew up just in the middle of all of that. Yes, trauma and just confusing. It was very confusing for me because everything that I thought I knew growing up was a lie. So I started listening to lies in my head. So nobody wakes up and says, hey, I'm going to be a full-blown addict today. Sure. I'm, I'm going to ruin every relationship that I have. I'm going to steal from my friends and family, um, you know, and I'm going to hurt people in the process, and I'm going to lose everything that I own. Nobody has that plan for life. Uh, I was a great student in high school. I was on the dance line. You know, I was in every club imaginable. I could do all of those things, but I was dying on the inside. Hmm. And I found that drugs and alcohol actually helped 
numb the pain of how I was feeling and how abandonment had snuck into my life and rejection and all of these nasty things. So when did that start? Uh, right after my dad's really? passing. Oh, yes, pretty much immediately. So I'd like to kind of hear a little bit about, I guess, your interior mindset, you know, as that happened. Mm-hmm. Did did you see that initially as, as like an act of rebellion because maybe you were angry about what had happened? Or was it like a, a coping sort of thing to, to fall into that? I would say both. Okay. Um, I was raised in church, so I was a good little churchgoer. I mean, I knew... I knew how to read the Bible. I didn't understand what it said, but I knew that Mm -hmm. it was good for me. But um, I turned my back on all of those things almost immediately, and I do think it was a little bit of both, having to cope with what was happening, and then also the rebellion, too, just because of the anger, because I was very upset and very angry and just confused. I was not sure why that happened or why did that happen to me. Were you aware as you were doing it that, that you were heading down a path that could be dangerous or could be harmful, or did it... Uh, like, was it just kind of trying to numb the the pain that you were in? Well, the first time I drank, I drank myself into a blackout. And I probably should have known then that this was going to be a bad idea for me. Hmm. But um, I didn't look at it as a as harmful, I guess, because all of my friends were doing it. It wasn't until I, I went to college and on um, university on a full academic scholarship, graduated from college with a marketing degree. Uh, and then I moved to Shreveport, Louisiana. You know, I was a small town girl moving to a big city. And... Everything changed for me. All of my friends stopped their partying, mm-hmm. and I was in the clubs every night until 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. I would go home, take a shower, go to work, rinse, repeat, and start all over. And so it was a daily thing for me, and so it became very toxic in my life. And you, So you were a functioning addict. I mean, it wasn't oh, yes. really impacting like your, your career at school or any of that stuff? At first, no. Okay. (laughs) You know, I mean, I still graduated from college, probably not the way that I should have. I graduated, but not with the same grades that I graduated high school from. Hmm. So things started to go downhill. I met my first husband in a bar. Um, We hit it off really well and moved in together. We ended up pregnant with my first son, Caleb. And two days later, September 11th happened. I found out I was pregnant. (laughs) And then September 11th happened. He was a B-52 pilot at Barksdale Air Force Base. So he was off to fight a war. And I was left alone, pregnant and and not knowing, not prepared at all for my new life. Okay. So by day, I was trying to be a good officer's wife or future wife. And by night, I was just... Uh, complete wreck. You know, in Shreveport, gambling is a big deal. So I was gambling in the casinos. I was using drugs, drinking. Uh, I did stop using drugs with my first son, but I still drank some. But gambling had become my new addiction. I just traded one thing for the other. Do you do you think you have an addictive personality? Like I know for a lot of people, addiction comes more naturally than for others, or maybe more quickly. I mean, do, do you see that in yourself that you're especially prone to that? You know, I think a lot of addiction just starts from trauma. I really believe that. I believe that everybody who is an addict has had some sort of massive trauma or brutalization in their childhood or in their life in general. And so they just use that. Once they found that that could help numb the pain of what they were going through, then it just became a part of who they were. And then it's just a cycle of despair. Because when you stop, then you realize all the things that you've lost. Mm -hmm. And then the guilt and shame come more numbing. And back down the rabbit hole you go. So how long, you know, did you did you find yourself in that rabbit hole and that spiral? I guess. I guess from the first time I drank to uh, most recently, a good twenty five years. Wow. So um, I lost my first marriage. We ended up with a second son, Jacob. Uh, my kids are 
in their late teenage years now. It's been almost eight years since I've been able to see or talk to them. Uh, someone finally got wise and took them away from me at a time that they probably needed to. Okay. And so have I tried to get them back? Of course, I still pay child support to them. Right. I do all of the things that I need to do from this side of the table, but it's just been very unfortunate that they don't know my voice or know what I even look like today. Yeah, I can imagine what that's like. Mm-hmm. It's it's really heartbreaking. And it, there's a lot of people that go through this. And so I feel like I'm still going through this so that I can mm-hmm. help others through that same pain. But you look back on it and you see that it was a decision made for their benefit Absolutely. because of, of the environment maybe that oh, yes. they were and in I, at the time. I wasn't the best parent. (laughs) I don't get that award. And I will probably never have that award. But today I am a good person. And if my kids ever come knocking on my door, I know exactly what they will find. And it's not somebody who's still in the streets, homeless and addicted, because that's where my addiction ended up taking me. Okay. Tell me how, um, you know, obviously, a lot of this happened uh, before you even got to this area. But but tell me how, you know, where where sort of the rock bottom was for you, and then how you began the process of climbing out of that. Okay, well, rock bottom is, I mean, it's a its a horrible place to be, but there's always another bottom. You can always find a trap door in the bottom of okay. that pit and go even deeper. And so that was kind of my story. Rock bottom was bad, but then my next one was worse, hmm. and the third one was worse. So, you know, through all of my traversing and wandering around the United States trying to find myself, I sure did find myself at every new location I tried to change. So I ended up in Mississippi. And I ended up homeless in the streets of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And I was living on a porch with no electricity and no running water. And I overdosed in the mm. middle of the street. And What did I, you overdose on? It was just a mixture of a lot of things and being up for two weeks. Okay. And I think everything just caught up to me and I stopped breathing. So I'm lying in the middle of the street. Cars are passing me by. Nobody cares that I'm dying. But I knew that's what was happening to me. I've had three failed suicide attempts over mm. the course of my life and... So I know what death feels like, and that's where I was in that street that day. And, you know, the next thing I knew as I, as I expired in the middle of the road and stopped breathing, I, I, the next thing I knew I was walking down the street again. And I honestly believe that God actually pulled me up off of that street and said, you know, you have more work to do. Hmm. And so I walked out of that neighborhood, and by the grace of God and through the help of some strangers, I was able to walk across uh, the threshold of a faith-based addiction recovery program in the middle of nowhere in Mississippi. And after seven days of being there, I said, can somebody just show me on a map where I am? Because number one, I don't feel like I deserve to be here. And number two, I just don't know where I am on the planet anymore. Wow, yeah. So it was really eye-opening for me. And I stayed there for six months. Um, I went back into a toxic, very toxic relationship with a person who is still in active addiction. And um, so within six months, I'd relapsed again and went back to that program and stayed on staff with them for a close to four years, stayed under that covering. This is my life. This is the way my mm-hmm. life is going to be. I'm going to stay under this protection forever. And I was perfectly content with that. Uh, but God had other plans. So uh, I moved out of that mission and moved to Biloxi, Mississippi, all on my own. Okay. And that is where I met my current husband, Jason. I met him at church. I had started going to church there in Biloxi and started making friends. And he was one of my good friends that I had made. And we started hanging out and we started visiting homeless folks. Uh, they were our friends. We would go and take them things. We would save our money and go buy them things at the store and take it to them, uh, we would just go hang out with them on the beach because uh, they really had nowhere to go. There wasn't a real mission for them mm-hmm. in Biloxi. So that was our friendship. And then at the end, of we dated eight months. 
uh, as friends. And on November 11th, 2017, we got married on a pier in Ocean Springs, Mississippi, and shared our first kiss that day. Wow. Yes. So that's kind of, uh, my friends used to say, are you a Duggar? (laughs) (laughs) You're not kissing him, but we wanted to just do something different, something we had never done before. Okay. So Jason's on, he plays worship music and he had gotten a job offer here in Amarillo. Uh, He used to live here and he worked here. And so his old boss had called him and asked him to come back. So that is why we moved to Amarillo four days after our wedding. Okay, so that was about two years ago then. Yes, close to two years ago, yes. And we just dove into church. We dove into ministry. We dove into—we were working a lot with the refugees out at uh, Eastridge, Trinity Eastridge, Mm -hmm. and so we were doing language classes with them. And uh, we were there every time the doors opened, but we were lacking in some areas. And uh, neither one of us—we were both too stubborn to admit that we might be wrong in some— things that we had going on in our brand new marriage. And so he coped the way that he copes and I coped the way that I cope. So I hit my default button. The first thing I did is I overworked myself. Okay. That's, I threw myself into work. I threw myself into validating myself through likes and comments on social media. Okay. My five Which has its own addictive, yes, you know, exactly. you know, responses there. That's, it's uh, real easy to fall into that sort of um, influence. Yes. Yeah, so those were the first things that happened. I put God in a box and on a shelf. Uh, I stopped my quiet time in the mornings and I just, I'm a publisher. I have published well over a hundred books through a company that I started and have since given away, but uh, I've written five books of my own. So I was writing my fifth book. I was going on speaking engagements and book tours all over the South on jet airplanes. And I was doing everything in the name of Julie. And then it all caught up to me. Uh, I had no, that was not being filled up with anything. And so I was completely empty. And so I did exactly what I've always done. And I relapsed in July of 2018, only eight months into my brand new marriage. So it was awful. I had been volunteering at Faith City Mission. I had been speaking to their homeless community because I love the homeless. And that's my passion uh, because I've been there. I know what it feels like. Uh, And so I, the first thing my pastor said when that happened was, you need to go to Faith City Mission. And I said, I am not (laughs) going there. That's, that's terribly embarrassing. So I'm not going to do that. But that's exactly what I did. What did that relapse look like? Was it, was it, was it drugs? Was it alcohol? Was it falling into all those bad habits? I mean, it was all of the above. Okay. And then some, you know, I left my home and stayed gone for three days. Okay. That's what that looked like. And when I came home, my husband said, you can't stay here. So in all essence, I was homeless again. I was looking at yet another divorce. I was looking at my life falling apart again. This is what I deserve. Um, And just all those lies started coming back in full force. You know, people think that just because you're a Christian that you're free of all those things, but that's not the case at all. I mean, we still struggle. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people just do it in silence, and they hide in plain sight. And that's what I was doing until it caught up to me, like I said. So eight months into our marriage, I walked across the threshold of Faith City Mission as a student in their discipleship program. Hmm. And there, uh, I w- was able to get into, they had very few beds available, but one they did was for the eight-month Women with Children program, which I thought w- was kind of funny. I, my, you know, I don't have my kids, but um, they opened that door for me, and so I jumped right into it. And everything at Face City was so different than anything I've ever learned about life, love. Even the previous, you know, mm. rehab facilities that you've been in. Oh, absolutely. This one went com- so much deeper. They s- put me into counseling right away, and I hadn't gotten counseling since my dad's suicide. Mm. I thought counselors were just full of it, so I wasn't going to do that anymore. But they put me right into counseling, and they started giving me 
a whole different set of tools in a toolbox that I'd never even seen before. And they took me on a deeper journey with my past and my pain so that I could bring it up to the forefront and actually deal with it in a very productive way. So it's hard for somebody like me to slow down and smell the roses, Mm -hmm. but that's exactly what I did. I walked outside one day feeling still very small and very insignificant. Like, I can't believe this has happened to me again. And I walked outside and I heard this noise, like, what is that? noise and I stood there for the longest time and then I looked up and realized it was the birds like Mm. I was hearing the birds really for the first time in a very long time I was slowing down enough to do that I'd like to talk a little bit because I've talked to a couple of people who have dealt with addiction uh, on this show you know one story that gets told pretty often is I was addicted to drugs and alcohol Mm -hmm. and you know I got out of it or I, I got fixed or I kicked it you know and and hearing your story that has a lot of starts and stops and big moments and then another rock bottom that yeah. it's it's like you know that line between better and you know capable of falling back is is always a pretty soft one and, and that you know you're never always just past it you're always kind of moving forward maybe but but like that pressure is always kind of close is is that accurate to oh, sure. talk about it that way absolutely the pressure is there and the accountability that you have to have if you're a person that's walking in freedom from addiction is you have to be accountable with every step mm-hmm. that you take or it's not going to work like you don't just beat it and then it's in the past and then you never have to think about it again like it's always it's always there it is always a part of you it absolutely is so you have to be very guarded and careful with um, how you spread yourself too thin or understand what your trigger points are or the things that could come against you that uh, might trip you up. And so to surround yourself with people who are for you and have your back um, and will be willing to call out things that they see mm-hmm. um, before it happens, because it all happens in the mind first. Right. You don't just all of a sudden just go do it. It starts in the mind. And so if you have people that surround you who can recognize that and call it out of you um, and you not take offense to it, which is the key, because uh, if you take offense to it, you're going to go to it. So, um, but yeah, that's what I have today. Uh, when I graduated the program in March, I got hired at Face City. I'm not on staff, but I am the capital campaign marketing consultant. And so I am surrounded by right. people who are willing to do that for me on a daily basis. And it's still and so when you're family. telling the story of Face City, in a lot of ways, it's it's your story. It too. is I my mean, story. It absolutely is. Uh, there are six stages that and we have six different people groups that we help at Face City, but the six stages are our continuum of cultural transformation. And so what it is is that we go all the way from crisis to stability and then so on and so forth until a person reaches altruism, which is basically, I don't care about myself anymore. Mm-hmm. I care about the well-being of others because addiction is a very selfish, selfish disease, if you want to call it a disease. But um, you know, all you do is think about yourself, what what you can do. And even when you get clean, sometimes that's still the case. You know, it's very self-centered behavior. Um, and so the one thing about altruism is giving back. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I'm doing today. You know, I've gone from crisis, which was it was a very crisis situation for me. I was homeless and about to get a divorce. Right. You know, what now? <laughs> and I've lost my job. I've lost everything again. And so... And then now here I am today, you know, giving back what was so freely given to me to the group that I love to give it back to you. You know, I want to love people up out of darkness and into the marvelous light. And the only way to do that is to say, hey, you know what? I've been there and I know what that feels like. And I can tell you that, you know, it's temporary if you allow it to be. Tell me about, um, and this may be an, an odd question, but but tell me about 
how you look back at the mistakes that you've made, um, whether recent ones in Amarillo or, or whether, you know, further back into your past and, and like give yourself grace, mm-hmm. you know, or forgive yourself for those mistakes because, you know, you've, you've cycled through um, getting better and then falling back and, you know, have gone through so much trauma and yet you, you still seem to be able to talk about it like very clearly, mm-hmm. very matter of factly. Yeah. And, and can talk about those mistakes and you're moving forward and you're still doing stuff. So like, like what's that self-forgiveness process so that you're not just always consumed by, well, I could have done this better or now my life is a culmination of all these mistakes that I've made. How do you, how do, you do that? Uh, there's a lot of different ways. I like to say, Jason, that we're all just one step away from a really bad decision. Mm-hmm. Everybody, whether you're addicted or not, we are all one step away from horrible things if we so choose. So... That's one way. I'm like, okay, well, I'm just like everybody else. Like we're all, you know, we all have to make decisions every day. The thing is, is that we wake up every morning and we say, okay, how am I going to fix my hair? Am I going to wear makeup or not? Socks or heels or flip flops? Or am I going to, you know, eat oatmeal or cereal? We make easy decisions every day that require no thought. So why does this one have to be such a big deal? Right. Why does this decision have to be so big? It can be just as simple as the other ones. You just make a decision where it's a choice. You have to wake up every day and make a different choice. The one thing that has been different for me this time around is I'm surrounded by people who truly love me. Okay. They don't just say they love me. They really love me and have my best interest at heart. And that is different. That's different from any other ministry I've been in, any other people group I've been around. Love covers a multitude. And so when you're surrounded by people who love you unconditionally, it really changes everything. Because you know that even if you make a mistake, it's mm-hmm. okay. You don't have to hold yourself hostage to those mistakes anymore. And I'm a perfectionist, so which is kind of funny with all the mistakes that I've made in life. Right. But um, what happens is when you make mistakes, you just pour on guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. You just pour it on, pour it on, and you wear it like an old victim suit. And for me, I just had to make a decision. That victim suit doesn't fit me anymore. I'm just, I'm not even going to hang it in my closet for a rainy day. Like, I'm going to burn the thing. Yeah. And so it's, again, it's just a conscious decision, but also be surrounding myself with people who truly care about me, because then that makes me feel uplifted, even if I'm having a bad day. Okay, so you, you've talked about the people that surround you and mm-hmm. the community. So I'd, I'd like to go two directions from here. Um, I do want to talk about Faith City and, and the impact, of course, sure. that it's had with you. But let's start um, with coming to Amarillo, you know, having grown up in the deeper south. Okay. That's a very different place, oh, yes. you know, from, from Amarillo. Tell me about, like, your perspective on the city, you know, when you found out you're going to move here, when your husband got hired. I mean, okay. what did you have any preconceived ideas of... This part of the state? I had never been past Wichita Falls. Okay. And I think so I, you'd been to Texas, but... I had been to Texas, but I remember when I got to Wichita Falls, I was like, okay, I've never been this way before, so there's something for me here. And the trees started to get smaller, yeah. and the land started to get flatter. A little bit browner. Yes, brown. Very yellow. Yes, it's very yellow. But what what it was for me is that Amarillo seemed... I was, I was terrified. I really was. I wasn't sure. Now, I've I've lived all over the United States in my wanderings, but you know, I knew that this was going to be a very permanent move, and so I just started asking the Lord, like, what do you have for me here? And so um, I knew that we were going to the right place for the right season. I just didn't know why. Mm-hmm. And it's all becoming very clear to me now because of everything that's taken place. And so what I like to see is, you know, Amarillo has got, it's so calm and peaceful here. 
you know, I always laugh. I'm like, the one thing that it needs more of is trees mm-hmm. uh, because that's what I'm used to. But a lot of us feel the same way. Yes, I'm sure. But um, it's just, it's got a, everything just moves at a steady pace. Nobody's moving too fast. Nobody's moving too slow. Everything just seems to be on an even keel here. And the fact that it's so faith oriented and family oriented, I think, um, is what really drew me to this. Now, the first, few months that I was here, I was at full-blown Julie mode, so I wasn't really paying attention to what was happening around me. The next eight months I was here, I was at Faith City Mission. Yeah. So I'm just now starting to get a feel for the community itself and how they do rally together a lot. You've grown up in like what we would traditionally think of as the South. Yes. Amarillo is kind of South, kind of West, you know, culturally, like take setting aside the landscape and stuff like that. Like culturally, does it feel different from Mississippi or from that area? Even though Louisiana's probably got a lot of the slowest people, I mean, you know, moving and making right, A lot of people would say that about the South in general. Yes. Everything's a little Every, bit slower there. Right. But that's how it is here. I think that Amarillo has all of that beat. I will say um, the one thing that, you know, kind of is disheartening is that people can't come into unity here. There's a lot of things that people are in disagreement about. And, you know, it breaks my heart because, you know, in Mississippi and stuff, there's a lot of things happening. There's a lot of things going on. Everything is super fast-paced on the coast where I came from. Um, Nothing slows down down there. There's a lot of gambling that's going on. Mm -hmm. The casinos are there. So people move at breakneck speeds. You can't even walk into a McDonald's without people pushing you over to try to get into the front of the line. Everybody's in a hurry. But here, everybody's really slowed down a lot, but there's still a lot of disunity going on. I will say this, though, that Amarillo is very unified in some areas as well. Mississippi, nobody really talks about anything. Um, Everybody just does their own thing. Everybody's incredibly just going in their own direction. So here, people are unified or they're disunified. It's one or the other, but people groups do come together here. Okay, so where you do find that unity, there's a a community aspect to it that that maybe was lacking. Uh, Absolutely. So that's what's very different. It's almost like a small town in a big city, Okay, but a big city that's not a metropolitan. Right. Yes. So let's talk about Faith City. Um, I, I know a lot of listeners to this program probably... Uh, are familiar with the reputation that Faith City has and the work that they've done, you know, for decades and decades. But I know that it's a time of transition. Um, So tell me a little bit about, like, you know, what the last couple of years have been like. I I know your experience is from both the client side Mm -hmm. and the staff side. So so tell me about the organization right now and and sort of the changes that have been happening. Well, I will say this, that uh, people have a lot of misconceptions about the homeless. They just think, okay, well, all they need to do is go get a job. And that's all fine and great. Um, And that would be great if they could. If they could even go get a job after the years of not having one, um, they wouldn't be able to keep it. And like I had said through my story, trauma, brutalization, uh, massive things that happen in your childhood actually make you have mental disorders. People start to think bad things about themselves to sort of goes into panic attacks or anxiety disorders, ADHD, uh, bipolar disorder, all of those things. And so how do you heal that the same right. way I did? You self-medicate. And so that's our community is mainly, the, you know, the homeless community. But so many people think, okay, well, they just are a soup kitchen. They just feed the homeless. And that is far from it. Um, we do have our six people groups that we help. We help children through a children's ministry. We have families, uh, mothers with children who come in and stay through the eight-month program mm-hmm. and get their life back on track or have open CPS cases where they're trying to get custody of their children back. 
Uh, we have the addicted, of course. Um, and those are, we have two 12-month programs, one for men and one for women, called the Hope for Men and the Hope for Women programs that we house there. Uh, we have, we help the disabled. There's some people that are on the streets who are disabled and can't get a job. Right. So we bring them in and offer them housing and they can live with us and then they work with us in exchange for their housing, but it teaches them job skills, but it also keeps them safe from predators who, you know, are after vulnerable people on the streets. Uh, we have the chronically homeless, of course, who have been out there for so long. Um, it almost seems like they believe that there's no hope left, but we're still going to love them where they are. And then uh, we have the working poor. And so we help all of those people through our emergency services, such as food, shelter, and clothing. Like I said, our addiction recovery programs, um, and right now, everything is housed in our main building downtown at 401 right. Southeast 2nd. Uh, so people come, they volunteer, they go on tours, and every single person that comes in for a tour says, I had no idea that you did all of this. They thought it was one of those things, exactly. not knowing that there are six you know, yes. different groups, different types of categories of people that are being treated there. Exactly. And so right now we have a maximum of 200 beds at our hmm. current location. So what splitting up into the two new locations, the one downtown, uh, Mission 2.0 that we so lovingly call it, and then the Mission Ranch, uh, which is about six miles north of our current facility, splitting up into those two locations is going to pretty much double our capacity to help people. Okay. The Mission Ranch will be for the addiction recovery programs. So it will serve many purposes. It takes them to a peaceful location. It gets them away from downtown and all their old people um, and just gives them a place to really heal for that year while they're here with us. Um, the downtown location will be for our emergency services. Okay. Um, and then our men who are in our aftercare program and our work program. So that way the two are separate. But the one downtown, the new location downtown has 200 beds all by itself. And then we'll have 150 out at the ranch. So it doubles our capacity to help. And is the ranch like existing now or is it something that is still in the planning stages? I mean, what's... It's both. It's, okay. uh, yes. So we are, we have taken residency. So it's, it's operational then now. It absolutely okay. is. We renovated God's house first. So the chapel is completely finished at this point with a few minor details. So we built God, we built the chapel and renovated it first. Um, the second thing is, is our men uh, who are... They're not in their first 30 days of their Hope for Men program, and they're not in their last four months, which is when they can get a job. So they're in that in-between stage, and they live out there at the ranch and kind of help maintain the property and do things out there. Our goal is to eventually move all of our programs, men, women, children, all out to the ranch. There's more than enough buildings to, to manage all of that and keep okay. everyone safe. For people that, uh, listeners that don't know, what did that property used to be? Oh, it used to be an old Episcopal camp. Okay. And so, you know, gosh, through a lot of different non-coincidences, uh, it became ours. And so we're very grateful for that. And we see big plans for that. So it is absolutely still in the planning stage, and but it's still in use as well. Your job right now is, is sort of um, to be in the middle of this capital campaign, you know, mm -hmm. trying to raise money. What are you looking at in the future for... You know, the donors that are coming in, the individuals that want to give, like thinking five or 10 years, you know, in the future, what do you see Faith City becoming, you know, as, as it goes through these changes? Well, our number one goal is to educate the public. Like I said, so few people know exactly what we do or why, you know, and a lot of people want to say, well, this or that or the other, well, why don't you come by and take a look? 
So, and we'll be more than happy to show you, but our donors are our family and we love them just like we love every person that walks through our doors. And we would not, I wouldn't be sitting here today if it wasn't for right. donors doing what they do. And so we're very grateful for that. What is happening is obviously we have our millennials in the world. And so they're going to they're gonna be in their 40s and 50s one day. And so educating them at this time, they're paying off school debt. They're doing, you know, they're, they're building their houses, having right. their kids, all of those things right now. But one day they're going to be donors. And so we want to form relationships with people at all walks of life. Um, just so that they know. And and a lot of that is to have people come in and volunteer. And then that way they go back and be like, oh, did you know? Um, and so that's our main goal is just come by and take a look and have a tour. And we'll be more than happy to share with you what we do. And if you'd like to volunteer, we have many, many opportunities for that as well. I, I know you probably get quite a few questions doing what you do about the homeless population in Amarillo in general, mm-hmm. because I, I have the perception, uh, and this may be true, maybe not, that we have a lot of homeless people that end up here, maybe because of our geography or because of the services that we provide. Is that accurate that like per capita, I mean, is is the problem larger here maybe than, than other cities or is it... Is it pretty average? Do you know, I've heard of uh, some homeless folks that have come from other states and they come here just because the homeless in Amarillo are well taken care of. Like there's a reputation outside here? Yes, absolutely. Huh. And so it gets out. And so this is a good place to be homeless. If you're going to okay. be homeless, this is the place because to Because we've it. got a lot of different organizations oh, that are doing stuff. Oh, absolutely. And so there is more than enough room for every single homeless person hmm. that's on the streets. It's just going to be up to that person whether or not they take that spot or take that bed. And so in order to do that, there's a trust issue with the homeless community. They don't trust people. And so you build relationships with them and good rapport with them and they begin to trust you. And now they'll come sleep in your house. So, or now they'll come eat a meal at your table. And so it's just building trust and an understanding and letting them know that they're not judged. Um, And I think that that's what they get here. There's so many organizations that just treat them so well that they're not judged. They are who they are and we just love them where they are. It's not our place to judge them. Just like it's not my place to judge an addict who's just coming off the streets. And so we are just meant to love people back into life. And then they can choose to go through our programs. We have found that it takes a good year to bring people from this crisis to this, this place of stability and altruism. But again, it's a choice and it's a free will choice that everyone has to make. But until they make that choice, we're going to give them every opportunity to make it well. So I'm struck by a couple of things that you said. Um, Number one, that, even within the homeless community, Amarillo has a reputation for treating people well. Mm-hmm. And, and number two, that it's you can find people, whether they're donors, whether they're volunteers, that will love a homeless person, you know, without strings attached. Mm-hmm. Having lived in other places, like like does that seem like a surprising thing in Amarillo? Is is that unique or Have you seen that in other places? Okay, I didn't know anything about homelessness until I became homeless myself in Mississippi, and there were no no services for me. Okay. When I moved to Biloxi and started ministering to the homeless people and going out and visiting them and being their friends, the services were so minimal and there was no shelter, except for when a hurricane would come, they would open up schools and things like that for them to come off the streets. Right. So many of them were like, I'd rather not go there. I'll just sleep under the bridge while the hurricane comes. So, um, because they're just not treated well. And so when I came here, this was a whole different aspect that I had never seen before Hmm. and never experienced and didn't even know existed. So I had heard a lot about the Dream Center in LA and I was like, wow, that is amazing. Honestly, Amarillo has its own Dream Center and it's just all of the different people who are coming together to make that happen. What we could use more of is people who 
aren't complaining about the homelessness problem, mm-hmm. or aren't trying to fix it in different ways, but just get involved, become a donor, volunteer, vote, whatever it is that you need to do, do those things, you know, instead of posting all about how terrible it is on social sure. media, you know, become involved, be the change that you want to see. And that is my desire for everybody. Just be the change that you want to see. It starts with us. You know, I've heard it before. Nothing changed. I changed. And then everything changed. And it starts with us. We all have to make a decision to be the change that we want to see. And it may seem very, very small, but in the grand scheme of things, it's the largest thing that you could possibly do. Hey, this is Jason. And before we go any further, Julie was honest enough to share about her earlier attempts at suicide. And if you find yourself thinking similar thoughts, please talk to someone now. You can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline 24 hours a day at 800 273-8255. That's 800-273-8255. Or you can text CONNECT to 741741, the crisis text line, or you can speak to a crisis counselor. And uh, there's no good transition here, so I'm going to forge on. As I mentioned earlier, this episode is sponsored by Kara Hendricks and Wick Realty. Both of their sponsorships come courtesy of my Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash heyamarillo where businesses or individual listeners like you can support the show on a monthly basis. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to know about that. Number one, this podcast is free, and I always want it to be free. Number two, I'm self-employed and work for clients, and I bill those clients at an hourly rate, which means my hours are, are very valuable, at least to me and to my family. So producing this podcast every week, it takes up several hours of my time which is why I try to get sponsors for the show. It, I mean, literally, it pays the bills. And it makes this more than a weekly volunteer gig for me. Well, Patreon lets you choose a support tier that helps me keep making Hey Amarillo week after week. So if you appreciate this free product, if you think it's valuable, whether to you as you exercise or walk or do housework or however you listen to podcasts, if it's valuable to you, if you think it's valuable to the community, then you can support the show and help me keep making it. For as little as what it takes to buy me a cup of coffee every month. To learn more, go to patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. Okay, I'm back with Julie Ballard. Uh, Julie's associated with Faith City Mission in a lot of different ways. So, um, Julie, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in whatever amount of detail you want to. Um, So the first one is, is unique to you. I know a lot of individuals, because it's Amarillo, might encounter a homeless person day to day. Maybe it's somebody who's panhandling by the side of the road. Maybe it's somebody who's, you know, sitting in an alley somewhere downtown. What's the best individual response to someone who might be homeless? If, If they ask us for help, what do we do? Okay, so a lot of people don't help the homeless out of fear. Okay. Everything is fear-based. And I get that because they look scary sometimes or they smell bad or they're just going to use that money for alcohol or drugs. We tell ourselves a lot of stories to yes. kind of get out of helping. Exactly. But the thing is, and the one thing that I've learned from our executive director is that you just do it <laughs> and you do it afraid. And she is not afraid at all to walk up to anybody in any given situation at any time and help a stranger in need. And because of that, she's incredibly blessed, but it's teaching me. Since I've lived on the streets, I know how crazy people can be. Mm -hmm. And so I do sometimes, even now, approach those situations with fear. But I'm learning not to do that because they're just broken people just like I was. And so a lot of times if I'm too busy, I will stop and tell them, hey, 
let me tell you how to get to Faith City Mission. I try mm-hmm. to point them in the direction of food. Toward resources. Exactly. Yes. Here's how where you go, how you get there. If I have money, I will give it to them. If I have nothing, I will stop and pray for them. And if I give them money, I don't judge what they're going to do with it. Just like I don't judge what the pastor is going to do with my tithe. I don't judge what, you know, any the missionary is going to do with the money that I send to her in India. You know, I don't judge that. I don't judge what the $5 is going to do for this person or the $10. Um, but a lot of ways that people can get involved if they're not up for approaching people directly on the street, they can just come, come to a, any organization, come to Face City, go to the park. Go to, you know, Guy on Sanders, go anywhere, go to the Salvation Army and start volunteering until you see these people for who they are and not who you perceive them to be. Because when you can see them through the lens of who God says they are and not the perception of what you think they are, then everything changes. It's real easy to see somebody as a homeless person and let that big category color everything about them instead of seeing them as an individual, which forces you to deal with like all the prejudices we might have, the misconceptions we have. I mean, you have no idea what that person's been through, and it's probably way worse than you could ever imagine. And so when you can see it from that lens, then it opens your heart for compassion, and then compassion moves you into action uh, if you allow it to you. And so my suggestion for people is just to do it and do it afraid, you know, and Mm. just trust the process and trust the Lord in that. And so that's, that's my suggestion. And if not, then Tell them where to go. Yeah. Or give them a ride there if you so choose. Or, you know, give them a bus ticket, whatever, whatever floats your fancy. But we're my husband and I are constantly buying people meals. You know, they'll ask us for different things and we'll be like, You want to just go to McDonald's? We'll buy you a Big Mac or whatever. And they're like, Yes. Yeah. So they it doesn't matter what you offer them, they're gonna they're gonna take it and they're gonna take it with a grateful heart. Okay. What's your favorite restaurant in Amarillo? Okay, I thought long and hard about this question. I love Yellow City Street Foods. Okay. Um, there's a lot of restaurants. We go yeah, out, out to eat all the time, but that place just makes my taste buds go on a complete and total epic journey. So they always have a different menu. They always have something on the menu that uh, is good for everybody. And then the uh, atmosphere is just incredibly electric. Yeah. So I One of the most place. creative places, I think, in Amarillo in terms of the food that they prepare, yes. the the influences on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, Scott is is drawing from a lot of different culinary transitions, I think. And I think that w- that's what makes it fun is because they're not afraid to try new mm-hmm. things. It's not the same old, same old that you're going to get anywhere else. It's going to be something different and it's going to fire you up. And by the time you leave, you're like, yes, I'm so glad I went to eat there. But it's because they're just so interested in trying new yeah. culinary techniques. And so it's a lot of fun to eat there. Okay. Great. Uh, what does this area have too much of? Um, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but honestly, because there's so many different people groups unifying in different ways, there's a lot of people groups here that are disunified right. and in conflict. And so because of every other place I've ever lived, everybody just does their own thing. Nobody really gets in each other's way. But here, you're either for or against. And when you're against, everybody knows it. Yeah. And so I think there's a little bit too much of that, um, whether it be from like the ballpark or town square or whatever it is that everybody wants to argue about. It would be great to see people become more unified. What does this area not have enough of? Um, Trees. (laughs) That's what I always say. But again, it goes back to we just we need to be a more unified group. If you Mm. want to complain about it, then do something about it. And so I just think that we need more people who, like I said before, vote, volunteer, and donate, um, and less people who complain. And I, I think you're right that there are a lot of different groups, whether groups you know built around you know, church attendance or political affiliation or even racial and ethnic divisions. There's so much diversity in Amarillo. Mm -hmm. 
that we find our groups, and then sometimes we stay in those groups. Mm-hmm. And then if you ever have the groups intermingling, that's where some of the conflict happens. Right. But ultimately, I, I think we do need to do that. You mm-hmm. know, the more we isolate ourselves, the harder it is to have conversations from one group to another. Well, do you know what I've found since I've pulled myself completely off of social media is that relationships are so important. Uh-huh. Face-to-face relationships, real relationships with people. Yes, yeah, real Non-digital ones, I guess. Sure, yeah. If you're going to have a conversation with somebody about something, then have it in front of their, like have it face-to-face, have relation, build relationships with people in person. And that has become one of my biggest goals is I just really enjoy, whether it's a conflicting conversation or an uplifting unifying conversation they're so much better in person than on social media yeah i think that's i think that's probably accurate Mm -hmm. how do you describe amarillo to people outside the area um it's incredibly charming when people come or want to come visit i just tell them that there's just a lot of love here um you know there's so many different things happening everything like i said before happens on a very even keel pace nobody's moving too fast nobody's moving too slow but there's just this charm about Amarillo that really draws you into it. I did not think I was going to like it at all, but I have absolutely fallen in love with this area, with the people, and just the different the different options that you have here to go out and do something fun or mm-hmm. interesting or eat somewhere. And, and then I think the group of people that come through here all the time in the summers and vacationers, there's a great opportunity to meet new people all the time. When was the last time you went to Paladuro Canyon? I went to Paladuro Canyon this past spring. Okay. Um, we went one summer, and that was the last time we'll go during the summer. Yeah, it can be pretty warm there. Oh, the yes. it was. That was not a good idea. Um, we like to hike around out there. We like to see new things. I've been to a couple of weddings on right. the canyon floor. Um, we plan to go again this fall now that we have a puppy, so we'll take her out there. And um, we've made it halfway to the lighthouse, actually, but then we weren't prepared. So yeah, we yeah. had to you, turn around. You, you want to have the right amount of water before yeah, exactly. you start that one. So we'll definitely do that again. We love Paladier Canyon. And anytime any friends come in from out of town, that's the first place I take them. Did you know about it before you moved here? Or did you like discover it once you got here? I did not. But my husband had lived here before. Right. So okay, he so. told me about it. I wasn't expecting what we what I found. And it's just sheer beauty uh, everywhere you look. And so we take our friends there. And then we take them to the Big Texan and then to Cadillac Ranch, of course. But Paladier Canyon is the first place I take everybody. You have to see this. Great. What's the most underrated aspect of life in Amarillo? Um, I guess it's the slow pace. (laughs) You know, Louisiana was slow. Mississippi, not so slow, especially on the coast. But I think it's just the slow pace. Everybody just kind of moving it, moving at this different rate than I'm used to. And for some people, that may be like a drawback. They may see that as something they want to leave behind or get rid of. But you see that as as definitely a benefit. Oh, absolutely. It's a benefit because it gives people a chance to think. I mean, when you're moving so fast, you don't have a chance to think. Go to Dallas and it's a blur or Houston or any other metropolitan city in Texas. So even though Amarillo is big and we've got this great big community, it's it's the slow pace, I think, that is kind of underrated. Okay. Now, one thing that we we didn't end up uh, talking about in the earlier conversation is that while you still work here in Amarillo, mm-hmm. um, you and your husband moved to the city of Panhandle. Yes. The town of Panhandle, maybe, uh, you know, a, a, a few months ago. Um, and so the last few months, you've been living there and working here. Yes. So I, just having that perspective, apart from, like, the population differences, like, what's the biggest difference between Amarillo and Panhandle. Look, I've lived in D.C. I've lived in North Dakota. I've lived in metropolitan areas in Mississippi and Louisiana. I, you couldn't have paid me a million dollars to say that I would live in Panhandle, Texas. Uh-huh. Uh, but we bought a house there because we had a friend that lived there, and we saw kids playing in the street. 
you know, which was very odd. You don't see that very often. Um, and since we've moved there, I honestly believe Panhandle is the Mayberry of the Texas Panhandle. Okay. If you lose your dog, someone will put it in their backyard until you can get home even if it's a stranger. If you need to sell something or give it away, just put it in the alley, tell a few folks, and somebody will find that trash and make it something useful for themselves. If you get sick or lose a loved one, you will be fed graciously for weeks on end. Everybody is unified there. There is a very, like, very little crime, and everybody just loves each other. Neighbors are best friends. Everybody lends a helping hand. If you need something for your house or something falls apart, you can bet your bottom dollar that somebody's going to be there to help you. And so, the one thing that I love, I mean, Amarillo is great, but Panhandle is just, it is such a peaceful community. And when you see kids riding bikes and playing in the street and playing kickball, those are the things I grew up doing. Yeah. And that's kind of since gone away because now kids have phones and they have the computer and they have the internet uh, in their games. Um, but these kids in Panhandle just really love to be outside. Uh, the snow cone stand is the hottest commodity in town, and all that's right. where you will find everybody on every afternoon. So, so the, all the charm of Amarillo, but maybe even amplified a little yeah, bit. It's maybe. A smaller, yeah. smaller <laughs> it's community. It's wonderful, yes. Okay, um, so that concludes the eight straight questions. Julie, I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something. So mm-hmm. what is like one um, one experience or, or something that you would want listeners to know about here in this area? Well, of course, I'm going to talk about Faith City Mission because what we're doing is so important. And I just want people to be educated on what it is that we do. The book of Acts says that people broke bread graciously in their homes together, uh, and then they shared love. And that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, The people who started Faith City Mission did so with a burning desire in their heart and a dream on their mind. And all they did was say, here, come into our home and eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you need a meal, come eat with us. And that's how it started, and we still do that today. Uh, I think Dick and B. Hogan would be very proud of us, of what we've accomplished uh, with their dream and their vision um, and how we've moved it forward into this new all of these things. I don't think they envisioned the amount of addicts we would have in our world at this right. time. I don't think they envisioned the things and the problems that we would be facing 70 years later. But here we are today, and we're moving with those. And we just, our goal is to love people back to life. Uh, whether they want to be or not, we're going to. And to give them the gospel and to teach them about, to love them until they can love themselves, because that's what they've done for me. You know, I am 100% a life that was changed because of the hard work of people and their commitment. You know, there's so many different um, organizations in town and they're all understaffed and overworked. Right. And so we do need people to help. We need people to get that fire burning inside of them that, hey, it's not all about me. We have a whole group of people out here who need us and they're not just people on the street who we can pretend that aren't there. They're there. They're there and they want your love and attention and your help. And so that's, that's what I would like to say to that. Julie Ballard, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved it. Thank you. And that concludes the show. I want to say thanks first to Wick Realty and Kara Hendricks of Edward Jones for sponsoring the show and especially to Julie Ballard for the interview. You can learn more about Faith City Mission at faithcity.org. And thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode. She's also an amazing photographer. So if you're in the market for really great photos... Head over to short-eared dog, those three words, shorteareddog.com. And finally, thanks to my executive producers, Corey Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Katie Linger, Criselda, Jason Burr, Daniel Davis, Josh Wood, Neil Nossiman, Patrick Burns, Ryan Pennington, Wes Reeves, and Wilson Lemieux. 
all of those people support the show through patreon.com slash And if you love the show, you can support it too. Thank you so much for listening. This has been episode number 105. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>